I'm sorry, Doctor. I have no time to discuss this logically. Remember. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Collect My Thoughts, a piece of the action series in which I, Eric, talk about what's important to me in and adjacent to hobby gaming and entertainment while not having to deal with the pusillanimous opining of Greg and Micah. Stick around till the end of the video for a bonus thought on a very new game, High Frontier for All. This month's topic is theme in board games, squaring the circle. In our regular series, Greg and I talk a lot about theme. For the record, Greg has stated that he doesn't play games for theme, but rather for the mental exercise that games provide in the form of puzzles to be solved. Me, on the other hand, while thoroughly enjoying the rush that comes from solving a particularly sticky dilemma presented by a game, I also frequently find myself immersed in whatever theme is presented. I like to imagine myself traipsing across the countryside of Europa in my diesel-powered mech, my trusty war bear at my side in the game Scythe, or building the Great Pyramids of Egypt, right next to, for no explicable reason, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon in Seven Wonders. The theme gets my imagination going, and it's usually the first thing that draws me to a game. But what is theme? In many ways, I like to think of theme as the opposite of mechanics. Theme is what you're doing, whereas mechanics is how you're doing it. With this definition, one could say that the ultimate themed experience is reading a book, or watching a movie. When you read a good novel or watch a good movie, you can be fully immersed in the theme that the author has presented. If written well, there will be nothing to disrupt your suspension of disbelief, nothing that will remind you of the real world and distract you from the fictional. It's too real, Roy, it's too real. Speaking of bad writing, and this is totally off subject, but um, Micah has this story about picking up some random paperback off a clearance rack and opening it to the line, Meanwhile, a thousand years ago, I've always gotten a kick out of that. Anyway, the rub is that what you gain in thematic immersion, you tend to lose in agency. So as I read a book, I have no control over what direction the plot takes or what actions the characters perform. At the other end of the spectrum, however, we have pure mechanism, most often in the form of some mathematical process, all syntax, no semantics. In math, for example, the procedures carried out could represent an infinite variety of actual situations, none of which are necessary for the equation to work. A mandatory component of any game is some means by which the players can exert influence over the experience. Otherwise, it's not a game. A game is not a static story, and, and even choose-your-own-adventure books have the mechanic of choosing which page to turn to. Players need to pull levers, as it were, to interact with a game. But the process of attaching levers to a story necessarily detracts from that story. That is, unless the mechanics reinforce the theme on a metagame level. What do we mean by that? Well, the example that comes to mind is actually from the video game world. There is this beautiful single-player video game that came out uh, back in 2013 named Brothers, A Tale of Two Sons. It was created by Yosef Ferris and Starbreeze Studios. Now, 
major, major spoiler alert here. If you have not played this game, I'm about to massively spoil, AKA ruin the ending. So please, 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 if you ever plan on playing this game and you totally should skip ahead. Okay, last warning. Okay, so how does the video game brothers exemplify theme at a metagame level? It boils down to the game's primary mechanic. As I said, it's a single-player game. However, you simultaneously control two characters, the titular brothers, with a single controller. The younger brother is an energetic prankster of about 10 years of age, and the older teenage brother is a thoughtful and considerate young man. Together, the brothers must travel across a fantastic and surprisingly dark world in order to retrieve a special medicine for their sick father before he dies. Near the end of the game, the older brother tragically dies, and the younger one must take the medicine back home alone. At that point in the game, the controls have become second nature, so the player knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that they only need to use half the controller in order to move the younger brother around to control him. But in the final sequence of the game, the player must discover for himself that he needs to use the fallen older brother's controls, the other side of the controller, in conjunction with those of the younger brothers in order to overcome the last obstacles and to save their father. When I played this section, I got chills because in that moment, I, the player, felt precisely the same way that the character felt. The mechanics that had faded into the background after the tutorial had suddenly demanded my attention in a way that made me feel as though I was the character. What does all this have to do with theme in board games? Well, normally the mechanics of a board game detract from any immersion that the, of the theme in that board game. But on a rare occasion, a board game's mechanics, like those in the earlier video game example, work to reinforce the theme on a player level. Scythe, by way of comparison, presents loads of theme. But for me to experience the theme presented, I, the player, have to actively exercise my imagination in order to suspend the disbelief caused by the mechanics, the levers. Another game, High Frontier for All, on the other hand, implements mechanics that force the player to feel like an aeronautics engineer for a space agency. The path to victory in that game coincides with a set of mechanics that create that feeling. I love both of these games. High Frontier because of its theme through mechanics, sandbox aesthetic, and Scythe because of its strategic depth and gorgeous design. If you're someone who enjoys strong themes in board games, and you're not a friendless hate bot who thinks joy is just a brand of dish soap, then congratulations, you're in good company. And you've got lots of options. Not all games are gonna give you a deep, compelling, immersive theme experience, but with a bit of imagination and the ability to compartmentalize the mechanics of the game from the theme of the game, you can enjoy the fun of board games on several different levels. So I thought it would be helpful to walk through an entire move action in High Frontier for All. Mistakes in this part of the game are very common and can really set a player back. So let's go over a possible move. And at the end, you'll also hear my suggestion for one of the best targets on the board that you might want to try to get to in your own games. 
For simplicity's sake, I won't be going over the auction or the sunspot cycle events, and instead I'll only be focusing on the movement part of a turn. So let's start on our personal board. There are a few things here that we need to go over, that we, that we need, before we can try to go to a site on the board. First, we need some form of thrust. In this game, I've purchased a pulsed inductive thruster. As indicated, this thruster needs a pulsed generator. You can tell what kind of uh, card it needs, what kind of support card it needs by the color and the symbol here. Therefore, I've also purchased this Brighton Turbine, which counts as both, you'll notice on the top here, both a pulsed and an electric generator. However, it also has some requirements here in this white box. We see here that it needs either a stationary reactor or a bomb reactor, and it needs two therms worth of cooling. I've managed to get a hold of this DT gun fusion reactor, which fulfills the generator's uh, bomb requirements, bomb power requirements, and I got a magnetocaloric refrigerator which produces three therms worth of cooling. Now at this point eagle-eyed viewers might have noticed something odd here. The generator and the reactor are both supports for each other. You might wonder if that's legal. It is, but only in the case of pulsed generators. It's some kind of physics thing. It's in the book. It's actually a real thing. The radiator requires, uh, excuse me, the radiator here, requires electrical power, you'll notice, but we can also supply that from the generator, and that's okay. So finally, we'll be taking along a Robonaut, which also requires electricity, and we can get that too from the generator, and that's totally fine. So for this mission, we won't be sending any crew, which is a risk in case of a glitch, but we don't want the extra weight, the mass. So now we gotta get all this stuff out into space. To do that, we have to make a boost operation. So that's gonna be my action for this turn, but I still get to move, which is a separate thing altogether. So to boost all these cards into orbit, I, need, I just add up all the mass, and that's how much aqua I spent. So we've got one, two, three, four, five, and nothing from the Robonaut. So in this case, I need to spend five aqua, and I get everything out as a rocket into low Earth orbit, or LEO, which is here. Now we need to figure out how much fuel we need to take in order to get to and possibly return from our target site. What this means is that we need to look at the map and calculate how many times we will need to activate this rocket. Then multiply that by the number of aqua we have to spend per burn. And that's how much aqua or fuel we'll take along with us. In other words, we count the number of pink burn spots that we have to pass through and times that by our fuel consumption. In the case of this rocket, over here on our cards again, uh, in the case of this rocket, we see that it requires two aqua uh, every time we do a burn. But because of this DT gun, uh, in the, it's in the supply chain for the thruster, that number will be modified by this, um, I'm sorry, by this one quarter fraction here. Note that that wouldn't be true if 
if this thruster wasn't uh, didn't require this reactor, but because it's part of the supply chain, all the modifications apply. Okay, so for this rocket, we only need to spend half an aqua each time we go through a burn site. We'll keep the total amount of fuel spent in this way in our head, and then we'll round up at the end of our movement to the next highest integer. For the route that I'm planning to take, we need to make three burns one way, and six burns if I am in intending to come back. Since each burn will only cost me half an aqua, it turns out that I need to take three fuel with me. So, over here on my fuel strip, we take note of the dry mass. This is the mass that we calculated before, which is a, at a five. We place that marker here, and then we add, uh, according, following the red line, we add three fuel, putting us at an, a weight of eight. Next, we need to figure out how much thrust this rocket can generate. This will be important for landing on sites, taking off from them, and avoiding radiation. We calculate this by adding this number on our thruster to any bonuses in its supply chain. In this case, we get a plus one from the reactors, so we place our token on the five point on the net thrust track. If our thruster had an afterburn indicator, like this card has here, we would add a plus one thrust if and only if we had spent the listed amount of, a listed number of fuel steps that turn. But we don't have that, so we don't get the bonus. We also need to make sure that we don't get a modifier from our mass. All fueled up, our rocket weighs eight, which puts us at the very top end of the scout class and gives us a plus zero thrust mod. Finally, we notice that our thruster has this icon on it. That means that if we or another player willing to help out has the power sat ability, they could add another plus one to the thrust. This is a good area for player interaction and negotiation in the game, and for the purposes of this example, it will be important later, so keep it in mind. So, but for now, our thrust remains at a five. Now let's see where we're heading. Our first obligatory spot is Cycler. It's a burn spot, so we have to activate our thruster and we spend half a fuel step. And again, we'll just keep track of this in our head for now. Now, we have to go through this radiation belt. So we have to make a belt roll. Here's where our thrust really matters because we want to get through this belt as fast as possible. We roll a die. in this case a five. Then we subtract, so we've got a five, then we subtract our thrust from the number rolled. Uh, if there's a positive remainder, so in the case our, our thrust is a five, we rolled a five. So if there's a positive remainder, we look to see if that number is higher than the rad hard values of any of the cards in our rocket that's listed here, the second number. If it is, then we have to decommission or return to our hand those destroyed cards. You'll probably notice that there can be situations like this one where that's impossible, where it's impossible to lose anything. Okay, back to our, our trip. As we enter the Earth, so we've gone here, next we're going to enter this Earth-Luna-Lagrange point. We have to spend yet another half of 
of a fuel step to make another burn. This one has all these arrows around it, indicating that if we wanted to, we could choose any line out of this, out of this spot uh, to, to travel on, other than the one that we used to enter with. Next, we do a flyby of the moon, picking up this plus one burn. This means that the next burn spot we encounter, we don't need to spend any fuel for. That turns out to be this spot here. So we can ignore it because we, got, we picked up the extra burn, so we move right past it. Next we come to this intersection where the lines actually touch. We could choose to change directions here, but it would require two burns worth of fuel steps, or in my case, one aqua. We don't want to do that, so we stay on course. We also pass here the Sol Mars Lagrange point and two more intersections, here and here. Next is another burn spot. So there goes another half of a fuel step. Then we pass by three more intersections. One, two, three. Next we come to this intersection, which is important for us. If we had the fuel and we wanted to, we could spend two burns worth of, uh, of fuel to change direction here and head down this brown line. But another option is just to end our turn there. And that's what we're gonna do. This represents spending time to realign the rocket slowly. Once it's our turn again, we will head down this line for free, no fuel required. And in this, this is gonna be a pretty uneventful turn because here's where we just come to this next intersection. And again, we don't wanna spend the fuel, so we stop here for a turn because we're intending on changing direction. On our third turn, we move to this Lagrange point, and these spots are the friendliest in the game because you can move through, stop, or change direction on them for free. So from here, we want to land on Hygieia. Doing so doesn't require any fuel, but it does require a strong enough thrust to overcome the location's gravity. The gravity is represented by this number here, the site's size, which is a five. Now our thrust is a five, but to land or take off, we need a thrust greater than the size of the site. And this is where you might utter the popular tagline for this game, I didn't do the math right before flipping the table. But remember this little symbol at the bottom of our thruster? This means that anyone with the power set ability can beam us a plus one thrust. So for the purposes of this, let's say that we get someone to do that, or perhaps we have the ability ourselves. Now we have six net thrust and we can land on Hygieia. Yay! Here's where our Robonaut comes into play. I'm just going to pick it up and bring it over. So we didn't come here just to take in the sights. We want to prospect. Uh, since we haven't taken an action this turn, we can try to find water on this site by performing the prospect action. These little water drop symbols, they indicate how hard that will be. You can only try to find water on a site if the number here at the... Um, top left of your Robonaut, this is called the ISRU rating by the way, if it's equal to or less than the number of water drops. So you want to go to a site that has a lot of water drops and you want the number here to be as small as possible. But three is equal to the site's hydration, so now we can make a prospecting check. To see if we actually find water on Hygieia, we need to roll a die. If the die roll is equal to or less than the size 
of the site, then we've succeeded and we can claim the site. And if our Robonaut is a buggy, like indicated here, we can get one free reroll. So let's see if that works. Reroll, and we get a six, which wouldn't have, uh, which would have busted that site. But because it's a buggy, we can reroll, and we get another six. So this is where you flip the table. <laughs> well, space is hard, right? However, I personally think that Hygieia is a great site to try and shoot for, regardless of what just happened, because it's got a really good hydration value and a size that's both reasonable for rolling ISRU, but it's not so big that you can't land on it. If you've got any questions or if you have any tips on how to play High Frontier for All, I will be better, uh, then let, let us know in the comments. <laughs>